previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. You know how many people butcher the English language as an English major? I'm slowly starting to let that go. I'm having an inner peace. From Delaware, almost live, this is the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Welcome back to the Sports Refuge Podcast. I'm Earl Holland. As always, this is a show where I interview guests about their connection to sports. In many of my episodes, my guests I've introduced to you have come from my journeys and experiences as a newspaper sports journalist in Salisbury, Maryland. And this week, it's no different as I met this episode's guests, Mike Brittingham and Kevin McGarity, a few years ago during an assignment live covering a playoff game between the Baltimore Ravens and Pittsburgh Steelers. McGarity and Brittingham have been friends ever since they became next-door neighbors as eight-year-olds, sharing a number of experiences from attending sporting events together and even being recreational softball teammates. In this episode, Brittingham and McGarity share their sports stories, including how they became Baltimore Ravens fans and their football fandom prior to that. The tandem also talks about how they got interested in professional wrestling, their thoughts on the Baltimore Orioles rebuilding process, and their experiences playing rec league softball. Let's now go into my interview with Mike Brittingham and Kevin McGarity. My guests this week, Kevin McGarity and Mike Brittingham. Good to have you guys here. I know we talked about it a while ago about getting you guys on, talking a little wrestling, talking softball, talking football as well. And I'm so glad to have you guys here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Oh, yeah, definitely. I met you guys a long time ago when I was a sports reporter at the Daily Times in Salisbury, Maryland. I was covering a live Raven Steelers game day party at the Buffalo Wild Wings in Salisbury. And I was fortunate enough to have you guys talk to me on record about the feelings of the game and going back and forth and what it was like at that moment. And that was such a great experience. Don't really get to do that much anymore in journalism where you have people going live. I guess more now it's focused on maybe live streaming and stuff like that, but to get a written play-by-play and sort of look and examination of a game like that, that had to be pretty cool. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. That was a crazy night. That was a crazy game. And, uh, you know, I, I remember Buffalo Wild Wings being packed to the gills on that one. It was cool to be able to kind of spill my mind, you know, to you. And we got a picture in the paper that day. Mike here has got that picture hanging up in his house right now. Yeah, my mom actually cut it out of the paper and put it in a frame. And she put all of our names on it and gave it to one to all of us. It was actually pretty neat. It was a, it was a nice experience and people asked you questions about it. And it was a good time. Oh, yeah. How long have you guys been Ravens fans, and what was your fandom like before the Ravens came to Baltimore? Well, I've been a fan of the Ravens since they became a team in 96. Before that, I was actually a Kansas City Chiefs fan. My favorite player that ever played was Joe Montana, and when he went to the Kansas City Chiefs, I absolutely loved that. They had a few real good years, Montana and then Steve Bono, Elvis Gerbach. They had a lot of quality years. I was just a huge Derek Thomas and Neil Smith fan. But, I mean, when your hometown gets a football team finally, you got to go with the hometown. So, yeah, I've been a Ravens fan since day one. Same here. Once your home team finally comes back and you're in that age group, like Kevin said, I've been a fan since 96. Before that, I'm not even going to lie, I really enjoyed the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That was only because they had the creamsicle uniforms, and I always thought that was like the coolest color. You know, you get the little starter jacket of the creamsicle uniform. It was a good uh, conversation piece. Yeah, I always liked those Buccaneer Bruce uniforms. They were pretty cool, and I always thought that, you know how some teams sort of, when they bring back retro logos into a modern setting, they try to sort of upgrade it. I'm surprised the Buccaneers haven't done that now. 
Well, I think the rule is, is that you're only allowed to wear one helmet for the season. Once the players get fit with their helmet, they're not allowed to use another helmet that year. So that stops the good throwback uniforms like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the old-school Patriots uniforms, you know, the old-school Broncos uniforms. They're just not allowed to wear them anymore. Oh, yeah, definitely. I know, like, for example, the Redskins, they'll do their, quote, homecoming uniform, and they had a helmet that looked like a Makabo leather helmet, and now they can't even wear it anymore. So they basically take their current helmet and just basically strip the center decal off, and it just doesn't make sense, especially the colors mismatch, and it's a really big contrast. Yeah, if you look at the uh, L.A. Rams uniforms, when they do their throwback white and navy blue uniforms or the blue and gold uniforms, they're actually wearing the same white and navy blue helmet, regardless of what color jersey pant combination they're wearing, because they're only allowed to wear that one shell all year, so they just got to kind of adapt with that. It, it makes the throwback uniform game kind of not real fun. It's not like baseball where you can see the Orioles wearing their 1983 uniforms or, you know, you get the real good throwbacks from a lot of the teams that have been around for a long time. You just don't see that with football anymore. Can we get the 1983 Orioles to come back and play for? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll definitely discuss the Orioles as well. And I know they've been going through a lot of changes, especially the overhaul of the front office and in the dugout. And I think that's a huge get for the Orioles, especially getting Mike Elias not even 40 yet and looking at it we're about that age group that has to yeah. say man a guy 36 years old getting probably what would be all our dream jobs yes oh yeah definitely exactly that'd be amazing but i like the fact that he's going to come in he gives a fresh new eyes i think it's always been so much that the manager was like old school manager you know you had to report to him it wasn't like a player's coach i think these guys coming in now are going to take the young kids and develop them into actual players and actual stars. And I'm excited for the future, to be honest with you. I think the next couple of years are not going to be too fun. But later on down the line, I think we're going to be all right. But, you know, it's just going to take a minute to get there. I'm kind of of a different mind frame where, to me, you're not going to find a better manager than Buck Showalter. I have a hard time with the manager-coach firing sometimes just because, you know, Buck Showalter's got a proven resume. He turned this team completely around from a 100-loss team to winning the division, getting the wild card, you know, going to the ALCS. That was the culture that Buck Showalter brought in. And regardless of whether you get a new coach or you get a new manager, they're not going to have more experience or more knowledge than Buck Showalter. The problem with the Orioles starts in the front office and their inability to spend money. When you're in a division with the Yankees and the Red Sox who continuously have – 150 to 200 million dollar payrolls every year if you don't spend the money you're not going to be competitive those couple years where the orioles were division winners and in the thick of it they were spending a little bit of money with nelly cruz and you know, guys like that they were able to kind of compete but when you stop spending money and you look over at the red sox and they're handing out 100 million dollar contracts to every big free agent or you look at the Yankees, and they managed to get Troy Tulowitzki, and they're making a play for Bryce Harper, they're making a play for Manny Machado. If you're not spending money to stay competitive, it's, it's going to be a long season. In an attempt, they tried to spend the money on Chris Davis, and, and I guess especially with free agency, it could be a crapshoot. Do you think it was the right thing to do initially to sign Chris Davis at the time? Were you all in on that signing? Absolutely I was, and I'll tell you why. Because they took this kid and... 
they developed him to at that point to be, if you think about it, one of our top hitters at the time. I feel like you had to give him that contract. I feel also, don't get me wrong, that they basically were battling themselves and signing him. I think they went a little too far on the money, but at the time and for everything that he had did at that point, you had to sign him. If you didn't sign him back, it would have been the Orioles don't want to win now, the Orioles, you know, can't keep any talent, but then it, it ends up burning you for a year or two, but you know, he's got a couple more years on his contract and uh, I don't see anybody else going to go take and eat that contract, so we just got to play him and, and hope that he performs at this point. Yeah, I think that uh, the year that he was working towards free agency, he had hit over 50 home runs that year. He was, you know, a, a great first baseman. He's he's been good defensively, but I think it also has a lot to do with who he had surrounding him. You know, he had he had a lot of good hitting surrounding him with Matt Weeders and and Manny Machado and Adam Jones. So and Nelson Cruz, he had a lot of cushions. So. They had to throw to somebody. You can't just walk your two, three, four, five, and six hitters and be successful. So you had to pitch to somebody. He was knocking balls out of the park. But the problem with the Orioles is, historically, they don't give out very much money very often. And when they do, they tend to get burned on it. Uh, you know, Albert Bell, they got burned. And, and now with Chris Davis, they're getting burned again. Hopefully he can have a comeback year and, and, you know, do a lot better than what he did this year. But when you spend that money and you don't get any results, you know, same thing with Ubaldo Jimenez. Spent all that money bringing him in here, and he didn't perform at all. So when you spend that money and you get burned on it so often, you know, for me it's like, who is your front office guy? Who is your scouting guy? Who is your general manager? Why are they making these decisions on the wrong players? And then at the same time, you know, you're going to spend $150 million on Chris Davis, who had the lowest batting average in the history of baseball last year. And then you let Nelson Cruz go, who's up in Seattle, you know, hitting the crap out of the ball right now. So you look to the front office and ask them, you know, what their evaluators are really doing. And I always thought it was the front office, that organization at a point was so splintered. You had Buck and his crew. You had Duquette and his crew. Then you had Peter Angelos making a lot of the decisions. Like, for example, they even talk about Angelos was the lead negotiator on the Chris Davis contract, which is it takes it out of your hands if you're a general manager about, well, yeah, Davis would have been nice to have back, but not at that much. Oh, I completely agree, and I really feel like they outbid themselves doing that. And, I mean, to be honest with you, I feel like you could have a comeback year, but, you know, at that time, you could have maybe signed him for less and looked for more pitching. But everything is a shoulda, woulda, coulda, to be real with you. But at the same time, he does a lot for the community, and he is – like big in Baltimore and does a lot of things with fans and, you know, going to the children's hospitals and stuff like that. And I think that speaks volumes, and I think maybe that had something to do with the actual contract length and uh, money-wise. Yeah, I, I know he works a lot with the uh, local animal shelters in Baltimore, the Barks organization. He does a lot of work with them, and he does a lot of stuff just inside the community that makes him a guy that you want around and you want in your city. You, you, you need those people, you know, just like an Adam Jones. Adam Jones caught a lot of flack at the end of last year just because he wouldn't waive his trade clause and, and he wasn't going to go to another team so we'd get some draft picks or, or whatever the case may be. But at the end of the day, you don't want to let a guy like Adam Jones go. I mean, Adam Jones is a future Hall of Famer, in my opinion. 
I love that. And uh, please sign him back. You don't want to just let a once-in-a-generation player go. I remember when the Orioles traded for Adam Jones, I was actually living in Seattle, and I had seen Adam Jones play several times for the Mariners, and I remember watching him, and, and that trade that went by, I, I can't remember who it was that they... Uh, Eric Bedard. Eric Bedard. And I remember me and a friend of mine at the time talking, like, why in the world would the Mariners give up Adam Jones for Eric Bedard? And he went to Baltimore and became a superstar. Yeah, and... I know a lot of people were sort of not sold on it. I know there were like tons of trade scenarios for Bedard. They were looking at Cincinnati at one point. Jay Bruce was someone they were looking at. And there was a whole bunch of other guys. And then when they focused on that group of guys, out of that group of guys, for Eric Bedard, you had basically three all-stars, Cheryl, Jones, Tillman, Plus, you got a couple of other guys, replaceable parts. Camp McCullio, he was used to trade for Mark Reynolds, who had a big role in that 2012 season. And that's probably the anti-Glenn Davis trade, and that trade is always probably one of the most rude trades in Orioles history, because even Arietta was struggling. It wasn't like they gave up Arietta, who was at the top of his prime when they traded for uh, Scott Feldman and Clevenger and things like that. But when you give up Steve Finley, Pete Harnish, and Kurt Schilling, who eventually blew up, and even it took a few years once he got to Philly. It was two teams later before he became the shilling that everybody knows. I always like to bring out, make a point that if you think about it, when we have good pitching, like they usually tend to struggle in Baltimore because obviously it's a short porch and things like that. But when they actually leave our system, our you know pitching coaches and things like that, they tend to thrive. I mean, if you look at Arietta, he went to Chicago and became a monster right away. A young winner. Yeah, like right off, right off the bat. You know, I always look at things like that, and I always said that he has such a nice curveball. If they could work with pitching, getting him better pitches around that curveball, and um, they just never seemed to to jump on board with that. And then when he got traded and he left and he went to Chicago, and boom, right off the get, Cy Young winner. But now he has a huge contract, I believe, with the Phillies. And it always baffles my mind how the Orioles handle pitching, but then, you know, they don't seem to develop in our farm system or in as a whole. You know, I think Kevin Gosman's going to be fantastic down in Atlanta. I say give him a year or two, and I think he's going to be fine. I'm really, fingers crossed, I hope they keep Bundy. I like Bundy. Definitely is going to be a number two, maybe a number one eventually down the line, but without developing and having people around him, you know, it's going to be a lost cause, kind of like the Jake Arrieta situation, and I, I worry about that. But I, I, like I said, I mean, I still love my Orioles. I just hope that they start working around the things that they have. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like with Bundy, I said it a few years ago, back when John Lester first came on the market, I think he got traded to uh, Oakland midseason. And the Orioles had a real shot at him, but they were hesitant about giving up Bundy and giving up Hunter Harvey in the minor league system to get John Lester. I honestly feel if we had gotten John Lester that year, we probably would have won the World Series. But they held on to Bundy and they held on to Harvey. Now, Bundy's had Tommy John surgery. Hunter Harvey's had, I believe, Tommy John surgery. He's had a lot of elbow issues. The Orioles just historically have a very hard time developing their pitchers. You get a few, like your Zach Brittons, your Darren O'Days, you know, guys like that that develop into good relief pitchers. But starting pitching, they've just always had an issue with developing those pitchers into consistent number ones and number twos. You know, Kevin Gossman was a great example of that. 
the guy was blue chipper all the way, but they screwed with him so much in those first couple seasons where he was come up for a game or two, and then they'd send him back down to the minors. And then, you know, midseason, he'd come up for a game or two back down to the minors. you got to let a guy like that that's got so much talent pitch. And, you know, if it's a choice between having him throw six innings or having Ubaldo Jimenez throw six innings, I'd rather see what the kid's got and let him go out there and, and take his lumps because eventually he's going to learn that way. You know, the only way you become great at pitching in the major leagues is to pitch in the major leagues. I think the biggest issue with the Buck tenure, and I agree with the pitching, is that he had four or five pitching coaches during his span, and that is like a head coach in football having multiple defensive coordinators, and that doesn't work. And Rick Cranitz is now in Atlanta, and he's going to probably work with Kevin Galsman, which is probably a big reunion. I think like Cranitz was probably the best pitching coach they had in addition to Dave Wallace. I think Dave Wallace got a lot out of those guys, but he just got fed up with dealing with Brady Anderson and things like that when it came to just the front office politics and stuff like that. I agree 100% with what you said. I think down in Atlanta, when they meet up, and I think Gosman's going to have a big year. And you're exactly correct in the fact that it's kind of like they have a brand new defensive coordinator every year, and it's hard to get a rhythm, and it's hard to get consistency. And I've always been big on consistency. If you have to do it, you have to do it over and over and over again to learn. And like to go back with what Kevin said, you know, to be able to pitch in the major leagues, you have to pitch in the major leagues. Like, you can only go so many times in AAA. And I think that when Harvey is 100% healthy, I think they just need to put him out there. I don't feel like pitchers these days and athletes these days get discouraged like that. I think it's the popular thing to be very, like, Joe Cool, they say about Joe Flacco, where he doesn't get riled up. And I think they need to do that with more of these young kids and just get them the experience. And, and that, to me, would be a huge help. Uh, I could be wrong. I'm not a coach. But as a fan, that's what I think it would help later on. I think one of the biggest things, there's just so many things to take from that conversation off the top of my head. One of the things with the Orioles and developing their farm system now will be they got such a late start hiring Elias and then hiring Hyde that maybe they're a year behind what they want to do developmentally. So this year might be one of those years they're just sort of trying to feel out what they have so far and then who they can bring in in the next offseason because especially if it comes to minor league staff, that's going to be a year-to-year type thing. Plus, there's no AAA manager at this point right now so there's so many holes they still have to fill and I feel like yeah they're going to get somebody to fill in at this point but then I think next October once they see what they have and once they have their plan in effect that it'll be something completely different. Oh yeah I agree they're behind the curve they were behind the curve with the manager signing you know it's frustrating when you watch the Orioles because you just never know what they're doing and you get the feeling that sometimes they don't know what they're doing you know there was during the winter meetings when they hired their manager you know, they're having a conversation with the general manager of the team discussing their manager needs. The guy's on screen telling you that they haven't made a decision on who the manager's going to be. They don't know yet. Meanwhile, at the bottom of the screen, it's telling you Orioles have hired their manager. And you know, it's like, which one do you want to believe? You know, Do you believe the general manager who's sitting here talking to you? Or do you believe the beat reporters and the guys from the MLB network who are telling you, you know, this is what's happening? You know, there's just a lot of confusion in the Orioles, and they've got good players. We go to several Shorebirds games every year, and and we watch this young talent, and they've got the players. They just need to develop them. And I'll say this much from a fan standpoint. No one ever wants to see their team lose, ever. But, you know, going into a rebuild 
at least you're prepared to know that they are going to rebuild and they're trying to do better, as opposed to we went in last year and they kept Manny around and they didn't get any real prospects for Manny. They could have traded him off because they thought they were going to start to try to win now and really compete with Boston and New York and the L.A.s. And, you know, when they give you that kind of expectation and it doesn't come to fruition, you kind of look back and you get a little more irritated with things as opposed to, like you say, this is going to be a a rebuild. So you kind of don't expect to go in and win 100 games. You still want to compete. You never want to lose. But you're going to have that defense mechanism of, hey, we're rebuilding new coach in a couple years. We're going to be good. You know, you're not going in thinking that we're going to win the World Series right away. Do you get disappointed if you have a team that wins 100 games, doesn't win the World Series? How long do you give a team a pass? For example, the Indians, very successful, got close to the World Series a couple years ago. And at this point, it looks like they might be sort of leveling off as the division might start getting tougher for them, even though it looks like they have the probably the sweetheart of a division as opposed to anyone who plays in the AL East or now the AL West. I think that, uh, you know, me personally as a fan, I enjoy when my team wins. I know that there's however many other teams in the league, you know, only one team wins the World Series. And, you know, we've gone since 1983 without winning a World Series here, you know, in Baltimore. But as long as the team's competitive, as long as the team's in the playoffs or competing for the playoffs, you know, you can't really complain all that much because you look at teams like the Pittsburgh Pirates or you look at teams like, Tampa Bay or teams like that that consistently finish at the bottom of their divisions every year that really don't give the fans a whole lot to thrive for, to show up for. You know, back in 2014, 2015, 16, when the Orioles were winning the division and and getting into the playoffs and going to the wild card, you know, did it sting a little bit that the Orioles didn't win the World Series, didn't go to the World Series? Yeah, of course it, it, it hurt a little bit. But I'll never forget the feeling of watching that game in the ALDS against the Tigers when everybody thought the Tigers were going to beat up on us. Delman Young hit that triple into the corner at Camden Yards, and the way the crowd reacted and the way that everybody was just going crazy in the stadium, you know, Mike was there for that one. Just to see that and feel that energy, and there's nothing, and I'll tell you, you I lived in Baltimore for about six years, and there's nothing like Baltimore City when the sports teams are on top. I was downtown when the Ravens had their Super Bowl parade in 2012. There's nothing like that city when the sports teams are doing well. And it's just that thinking of, yeah, maybe we're not winning the World Series this year. Maybe we're not going to win the Super Bowl, but we're here. We're in the mix. As long as we're in the mix, I'm happy. You know, like you were bringing up, like, how long does a team get a pass? I think you got to play it year by year, to be honest with you. Teams get better over the offseason. Players get better. Players play in other leagues. You know, batting practice and developed talent gets a little better in the offseason. I can't go in and expect because we won 100 games. Now, this year we're going to win 105. To me, that would be unfair to put on as a fan to myself and to an organization I wouldn't want to be disappointed like that. I'd just take it a year at a time. And and Cleveland, they were good for a good minute there, and and they have some decent pitching. I think they're going to try to do a little trading and moving around themselves. But to be honest with you, I think one year at a time is the best thing that you can do. You know, and you look at the Ravens, for example. Every year the Ravens do one or two things in the offseason that give the fans hope. We won the Super Bowl in the 2012 13 season. We come back, Dennis Pitta breaks his hip. So 
so everybody's upset and everybody's sad about that. But then we turn out and we land Elvis Doomerville that offseason, and we trade away Anquan Bolden, and there's just a few moves every year that let you believe that, you know what, we're going to be okay, we're going to be in the mix. You know, we had the one year with Baltimore where we had the most injuries in the league, and Flacco tore his ACL, and Justin Forsett broke his arm, Suggs tore his Achilles, and, you know, that was a rough year in Baltimore, but we came back, we signed Steve Smith, we had all these additions that just keep you in the mix, and it makes you feel good as a Ravens fan, because at the end of the day, you could always be like the Buffalo Bills or the Jets or the Browns, where you get to week one the regular season, and you know that you're not going anywhere. With Baltimore, it always comes down to, to week 17, and... I'll take that every year over knowing that your season's over after week six. And it's interesting looking at the Ravens, and I know you guys probably watch uh, Football Life on NFL Network. There is one mm-hmm. specific episode, I think it's Cleveland 95, and you get an inner working of how a lot of the stuff the Browns did and all those guys who started working out and maybe underlings and assistants doing all this stuff. If you look at that, you see the basis of two franchises and their path to where they end up becoming. Basically, and you look at it, and I know maybe Ravens fans may not want to admit it, that the Ravens dynasty and the Ravens franchise and the way they're run, Bill Belichick had a huge impact on that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can only imagine what our franchise would be like if Bill Belichick had stuck around and coached the team instead of hiring Ted Marchabrota when we got started. Bill Belichick's a genius. I'm a realist, and I realize that Bill Belichick is probably the greatest mind outside of Vince Lombardi that has ever coached in the NFL. You see what he does year after year in New England with very little star talent. I mean, he's got the greatest quarterback who ever lived in Tom Brady. But year after year, Tom Brady's not really surrounded by all that much offensive talent. He's never had a star running back. He's never had a top-five rusher. He had a year and a half with Randy Moss where he set NFL passing records and it led him to an undefeated regular season. But other than that, you know, he's had Wes Welker, he's had Julian Edelman, he's had that kid Hogan that's there now. You know, he's got Gronkowski, but Gronkowski misses a lot of games. So the way that Bill Belichick gets players in the building and whether they're stars that have been released and traded off of other teams or whether it's guys that they've drafted, he gets them to buy into that mentality of winning at all costs. And, you know, that's how he shaped the Browns organization, which turned into the Ravens, and set them up for a lot of success. You know, allowing Ozzy to get in there and be the general manager and start making his draft picks, you know, for years, you know, really 96 to about 2006, 2007, Ozzy was can't miss in the draft. Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer, All Pro after All Pro. Ozzy knew what he was doing, obviously, except when it came to drafting quarterbacks and wide receivers. But you know, they really set that culture in motion, and Art Modell just kind of was able to hire the right pieces to go around that to support what they were building when they started in Cleveland. Did you guys ever get a chance to attend sporting events at Memorial Stadium? I've never had the chance to, and I always wondered if you guys went and what the experience was like, if so. I personally have gone there a couple times when I was obviously younger. Uh, My mom actually grew up uh, a couple streets over from Memorial Stadium, and every year growing up since I could have remembered, my parents always made it a point to take us to a baseball game, whether obviously later on it was at Canton Yards. 
But when I was young, we have been to Memorial Stadium quite a few times. And the best thing that I can remember about doing that, because I was so young, it was like everybody was in a good mood. Everybody went out there. Everybody had a good time. If you were stressing about something, you left it outside the stadium. You went in. You ate hot dogs that you didn't need to eat. You know, you ate... (laughs) French fries that were cold by the time you got back to your seat. And it was just a family atmosphere. I remember going out there, and that was our vacation for the year. We would go to a ball game, and we'd sit back, and we'd laugh, and we'd hang out. And we actually would go uh, duck pin bowling, too, which was always kind of fun. But, yeah, I mean, I do remember that, but it was more for the uh, family experience, being that I was so young. Yeah, I uh, went to one Ravens game at Memorial Stadium. It was actually... Dan Marino's last season, the Dolphins were playing in Baltimore Memorial Stadium against the Ravens, and I was able to see Dan Marino play there, which was an incredible experience. You know, how often do you get to see a once-in-a-generation player live? They played the Ravens. I believe the Ravens won that day, but Memorial Stadium was a beautiful stadium. It, it's historical. It's going to be, you know, forever remembered as one of the great American stadiums of, of that generation. Um, you get into Camden Yards, and Camden Yards is the model for what modern stadiums have become. And I, I don't care how fancy and technological baseball and football stadiums get. You know, I know they're building a billion-dollar stadium in L.A. right now, and you know, you got stadiums that got swimming pools and, and everything else in them. When you walk into Canyon Yards, you're walking into church. That's a building that will always set the standard of what a sports arena should be. Baltimore fans are very lucky. I've got friends from, you know, live out in California and the West Coast, and you know, they literally fly into Baltimore to go see games at Canyon Yards just because of that stadium and what it represents and, and what it is. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a landmark landmark stadium. And I think a big thing about that as well, I'm not sure how the accessibility was to Memorial Stadium, but especially with public transportation, living in Delaware now, to get to one of the light rail stations in Baltimore, an hour. That's all it is, an hour, and then take the train in, and then take the train back once the game's over. And it's so accessible, and I feel like, Places where it's fan-friendly, very safe neighborhood, or good neighborhoods, very accessible, a lot of business booming in those areas, makes an experience so much better. I know RFK, for example, it has its quirks and things like that, but one of the big things it has over FedEx is its accessibility. You can get on the green line, get off to Armory, go there, do stuff around there, and get back on the green line and go to Armory back to wherever you go, and I feel like it makes it so much easier. Oh, definitely. I mean, having the accessibility, you know, just like at M&T and, uh, and Camden Yards, you know, the light rail goes right past the stadium. You're right there. It's, it's minutes away. It makes the fans inside the city who are just commuting in, in and out of the city to those games, it makes it a lot easier to get there. You go to Camden Yards, you show up a little early, you can go across the street to Pickles, you know, have some drinks and get yourself ready for the game. There's vendors everywhere. There's plenty of places to eat, you know, within walking distance of the stadium to get yourself ready. And just the atmosphere in general is an incredible place to go watch a game. It's an incredible place to be with the other fans. There's not much like Baltimore sports fans. They're they're as passionate as you can get about their team. We may not be the best teams in the world, and we may not win championships every year, but people love their Orioles and they love their Ravens, even to stretch it out, you know, the Redskins and the Capitals. When the Capitals won the Stanley Cup this year, you know, that stretched everywhere from D.C. to Baltimore over here on the shore. You know, it felt like a community thing. 
you ride around town and you see everybody with their capital stickers on the back of their cars or the Ravens gear. You know, I was just at a, it was a convenience store about an hour ago. I've got my good luck Ravens hoodie on right now, and I've had four conversations with people about the game today. And, you know, it's just people get excited about Baltimore sports, and that's what I love about it. As we transition from Baltimore sports to talk about something I know that you guys are biggest fans of, as I am, pro wrestling. How did you guys? <laughs> how did you guys get into pro wrestling? And what was your first event that you remember going live to? Mike and myself have been friends since we were about eight years old. We moved next door to each other, and we didn't really know each other very well. We had seen each other around school, but we didn't really know each other. We moved next door, and we just started talking, started hanging out a little bit, and we realized that we were both big pro wrestling fans. The first event I ever went to was in the Baltimore Arena. It was an old WWF TV taping back in the day of Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, those guys. But uh, for me personally, what got me into wrestling was my dad had an old cassette tape of Starcade 1985. And the main event was Dusty Rhodes against Ric Flair. Four Horsemen against Dusty Rhodes, one of the greatest rivalries that's ever existed in wrestling. And Ric Flair is my hero. He's my favorite wrestler of all time. But uh, I remember watching that cassette tape over and over again, and there was one match that set my world on fire when it came to wrestling, and it was Magnum TA facing Tully Blanchard for the United States title in a steel cage I quit match. And I was probably about seven years old when I watched this for the first time, and just watching it, watching the brutality of it, and watching the performance of these two guys inside of a steel cage you know, just terrorizing each other, and you know, nobody would quit. And Magnum TA with a broken wooden chair jabbing a piece of this chair into Tully Blanchard's forehead, it was like, holy crap, you know, this is amazing. You know, then you, you fast forward and you're watching the promo for the Dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair match, and, you know, Dusty Rhodes had his world-famous uh, hard times that a promo, you know, it just reached me and it touched me and it was something that just captured me the way that Dusty Rose and Ric Flair could talk to you and captivate you with every single word that they had to say. The way that Ric Flair could make you just love him but hate him at the same exact time because he was better than you and he knew it and he wasn't afraid to let you know that he was going to go 60 minutes with you and you weren't going to beat him. And that's just what captivated me. And when me and Mike met each other and you know, we started hanging out, we started watching a lot of wrestling together, it was just that kind of bonded us together as, as best friends. And it's been like that, honestly, since we were eight years old. Well, I know personally for myself, when I was growing up, I would always listen to my dad tell stories about him wrestling. At the time, I didn't correlate that he meant more Greco-Roman high school wrestling, so here I see this Saturday mornings on TV, and I am just captivated. Like, it was, to me, it was the most fun thing that I could watch when I was young, that these guys are really slamming each other, and they're talking on the mic, and there's promos that you don't, you don't realize till you get a little bit older, you know, how much that actually entails for some people to do. And you got to think about it, like, when when I was growing up, I would be like, man, I wonder if they were like that in real life. That'd be one of the first things I would think about. And I would watch matches. And Kevin's a huge Ric Flair fan, and I can't lie, I was always a Shawn Michaels fan when he came in with the Rockers. I think he puts on the best show at that time. But seeing these characters come out 
and they played them so well. And all I could think was, this is what I wanted to do when I got older. Like, this was something that was so awesome that you could talk about. And then Kevin ended up moving next door. We got into that, like, more and more, and we would talk about it. And my brother, who's a little bit older than myself, he was somewhat into it, and it just really took off. And I've seen many live shows, so to go back and pick out specifically one, I would have to pick out the time that me and Kevin went to see WCW in Salisbury. (laughs) And I think it was one of the first times that the Giant came out. And uh, he was standing in the crowd, and I believe uh, they had a wrestler by the name of Fit Finley. (laughs) And we would always just, you know, because he was Irish, so our parents always told us we were of Irish descent. So we would yell, Ireland. I mean, it was just something that you could go and be yourself and have a good time. And it brought a lot of people together. Yeah, and we've been to a lot of events together. When we were teenagers, Mike's mom would take us to Baltimore for a lot of the Monday Night Raws. We saw some really, really cool stuff. There's an episode of Monday Night Raw where Stone Cold Steve Austin and Kane pushed Paul Bearer down a sewer. And we were there for that. Uh, we got that. Yeah, to see yeah. we got to see The Rock defend his WWF championship against Shane McMahon in a steel cage. Just real cool stuff like that. They have events here at Salisbury Civic Center that we go to every year. We're actually planning on going to WrestleMania this year in New York. We've never been to anything like that before, so we're looking forward to kind of getting there and, and taking it all in. Hall of Fame ceremony, the NXT the night before WrestleMania, and WrestleMania itself, which is always, Lord knows how long it's going to be. It might be 24 hours long this year, but it's always a spectacle. It's always an event, and uh, you know, just looking forward to stuff like that. Do you feel that wrestling has changed as the older we've gotten? Especially, we grew up in the age of Hulk Hogan and then Stone Cold. And as we got into adulthood, it's John Cena and now the era of Roman Reigns, Brock Lesnar, and things like that. Well, it has changed, and I, you know, I'll, I'll definitely say not for the better. It's changed because society has changed. We are a society of social media. We're a society of reality TV. And, you know, obviously these performers, wrestlers, they're, they're human beings just like everybody else. They like to enjoy their social media. They like to talk about their lives, which is great. But in reality, it kills the idea of realistic storytelling. I can remember a couple years ago when the Roman Reigns-Braun Strowman rivalry first really kicked off. They were in the middle of a very heated feud, and and they were battling every week on Monday Night Raw. But then you would look on Braun Strowman's social media on Twitter, and you'd see a picture of them hanging out together in some city that they're in or eating dinner together. And you're like, all right, well, yesterday on Monday Night Raw, you guys threw each other off the stage through tables and couldn't stand each other. And today you're sitting here having a coffee together. It just kind of kills the storytelling ability. That's the biggest thing to me that just kind of drives me crazy is back in, I'm a huge fan of the Attitude Era, as I like to call it, in 97 through, you know, 2005, really. There was always a story. Everybody had a storyline. Everybody had something going on, and it captivated you. Every week, you never knew what was going to happen when Raw went off the air or Nitro went off the air. It It was always a mystery, you know. What am I going to do until next week when Raw comes on again? Now it's, I can sit and watch Monday Night Raw and I can tell you segment by segment what's going to happen and why it's going to happen. And it just kind of loses its allure because you already know. You know, every week now, 
Drew McIntyre is going to come out and beat up Dolph Ziggler, and Seth Rollins and Dean Ambrose are going to fight, and it's just gotten a bit stale at times. For me personally, um, when I was young and was really getting into it, I would really in my head think that this is how these people were in real life. Like, they were heels in real life. Ric Flair would woo you and tell you he was going to kiss your mother, and, you know, in my head, they were like that 24-7, and now that I'm older and with social media, you see, like Kevin was saying, they're hanging out with one another, which, you know, everybody, as a fan that I am still, you know, you know this, you know, that's, that's what they do. I mean, they travel together and things like that. But I think it's changed a lot, not for the better, in my opinion, because I feel like they're trying to target the specific audience as opposed to a whole audience. So they're targeting, obviously, John Cena. There's no way in the world he should have almost the same amount of titles as Ric Flair. I'm sorry to say it. It's just how I feel. But he is perfect for the kids. You know, he's a role model. He anti-bullying, and that is awesome. And that is really essentially what you want nowadays with all the issues that are going on. It's just, as an old-school fan, it's one of those things where they just don't carry their character all the time. And, and again, they shouldn't have to, but as an old-school fan that grew up, I really thought that they, you know, acted that way in real life all the time. You know, and it just takes away, in my opinion. I always sort of see the John Cena-Hulk Hogan comparison to sort of like Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant. Different eras, growing up different times, but unlike seeing Kobe play against Michael Jordan, we didn't get to see Hulk Hogan wrestle against John Cena, the official passing of the torch like they did with Hogan Rock. I feel like, and that was something that just poor timing and other things that happened, that was something that would have been a great thing to see. Well, seeing John Cena against Hulk Hogan would have been okay, but, you know, like you just said, WrestleMania 18, we got to see the passing of that torch from Hollywood Hogan to The Rock. And you know, that will always go down as one of the greatest matches of all time. That was Hulk Hogan coming in after taking that time off from WCW and you know, the buyout. He, he waited his time and he came in and he had an amazing match with The Rock. And The Rock took that torch and he carried that torch. But he also, he passed that torch you know, it, it was his torch, and he passed it to John Cena at uh, WrestleMania 28 and 29. You know, they had a great rivalry, and they had, you know, the thing that always kind of bothers me about the anti-John Cena people, his character got very old. And, you know, the idea of the Superman who can beat everybody, and, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you hit him with a pedigree or sweet chin music or a Stone Cold Stunner, John Cena's going to kick out. It gets old. But... One thing about John Cena that nobody can ever deny is he never has a bad match, and he never disappoints. His rivalries in the mid-2000s with Edge and guys like that, he just always carried the torch, and he always made the best out of a bad situation, no matter what the case was. They call him Big Match John for a reason, because he never disappointed. His matches with Triple H, his match at WrestleMania 23 with Shawn Michaels, match with Shawn Michaels is probably one of my favorite matches I've ever seen. His rivalry with Kurt Angle, he was just, he's such a great performer, and I feel like if they had done something differently with him, if they had done something similar to the Hulk Hogan NWO heel turn with him, he would still be on top today. I, I honestly don't think he would be away doing movies right now, because I still think he would be the top heel in, in the history of wrestling. 
could you imagine if Hulk Hogan's run as an actor took off the way it did for The Rock and John Cena and, to a lesser extent, Stone Cold? Do you think that we would have had that whole Hogan sold out type thing the way they did with The Rock? Absolutely. Yeah, honestly, I think it would have been a little more hurtful yeah. with Hulk Hogan than it was with The Rock. Because Hulk Hogan was Superman. Hulk Hogan carried the wrestling industry on his back for many, you know, close to 20, 25 years. From the birth of Hulkamania in 84 to him leaving for WCW in 95 and the birth of the NWO and completely reinventing himself from ground zero in 96 with the NWO. You can say whatever you want about Hulk Hogan personally. You know, I, I know his personal life is kind of crazy and he's done some things that nobody really agrees with. I have a friend of mine who I talk wrestling with all the time, and right now he's very anti-Hulk Hogan. And I tell him all the time, I'm not a fan of Terry Bollea, but I am a huge Hulk Hogan fan. Because, you know, when I was growing up, when I was a kid, he was Superman. There was nothing that Hulk Hogan couldn't do. And there was nobody that Hulk Hogan couldn't beat. You know, watching him power slam Andre the Giant was one of the greatest moments of my entire life. I watched it on closed circuit TV in Towson when WrestleMania 3 happened. I actually have the baseball card they made of him slamming Andre the Giant. And if you're our age, which is in that realm of 37, 35, you know, 40-ish, there's no way that when you grew up and you were a professional wrestling fan, you didn't rip your shirt. Everybody ripped the shirt. My mom would cut little holes in the t-shirts that I didn't wear anymore just so I could rip them completely off like Hulk Hogan did when he came out. I mean, if you didn't do that as a wrestling fan, you're not really a wrestling fan. Going back to an early discussion about the evolution of wrestling, do you feel Vince McMahon's speech about fans not having their intelligence insulted was a double-edged one? Yes, they wanted the entertainment, but then at that point, do you let that veil of, yeah, I wouldn't say secrecy, but you see a little more of the inner workings, and I feel like that may have changed a lot of stuff too. His speech that night on Monday Night Raw was a game-changer, and it was something that had to happen. They were getting beat so bad in the ratings by WCW, who was doing a lot of realistic storylines at that time. You know, the, the whole NWO angle in general, from the start until about the middle of 1997, the late 97, was all very realistic. You know, you didn't know what was going on when Hall, Nash, and Hogan were attacking people backstage or, you know, out in the parking lot. That was very real feeling for a crowd that really hadn't dealt with the reality of wrestling yet. But Vince McMahon he had to make a decision to do something to turn the tables. And when you start adding a little bit of reality into your stories, it, it makes people interested because you can sit and watch a match you know, between Doink and Duke the Dumpster Drose, and you say, you know what, yeah, that's crap. You know, obviously, that's yeah, fake. But when you see Stone Cold attacking Bret Hart in the back and he's, taking a steel chair to his knee and you know they're loading bread up in an ambulance you say well okay that was real that happened you know it turns the tables in what's reality and what's fiction and he did that the best way that he possibly could have and you know he was facing a lot with Bret Hart and the and the Montreal screw job issue and honestly that right there and the decision that he had to make, it changed and shaped the wrestling industry forever. I can't even fathom what 
we would be watching today had Bret Hart not made the decision to not drop the title to Shawn Michaels and force Vincent Mann's hand to take the title from him the way he did. It was a necessity, and at the time, you know, it was very controversial, and it was very, very raw, and it was very real. But it was something that had to happen. You know, WCW had so much money and so much influence that you can't say that, you know, oh, well, Brett wasn't going to take the title to WCW. Alundra Blaze had already dropped their women's championship in the trash can on live TV. You know, they had already had Rick Rude walk out on TV from a taped edition of Raw and then walk out on a live edition of Nitro on the same exact night. WCW was going to kill WWF at all costs. So, you know, Vince did what he had to do to save his company and to keep his brand alive, and I think it happened by accident, but in doing so, he managed to create the greatest villain that has ever lived in professional wrestling, and that's the Mr. McMahon character. Yeah, and I think that that was a huge benefit for them, and I felt like especially on Monday nights, especially from a span from maybe even from the beginning of Monday Nitro to, I'll say, 99. There'd be a point I would change back and forth in between commercials. What's on Raw? What's on Nitro? Back and forth. And I feel like the way they would build it up at the end, I feel like at the end of Raw, you'd get sort of a final ending, but you know, I'm going to tune in next week. It was more of a cliffhanger at the end of Nitro than it was Raw some week. Absolutely agree. When you watched the end of Nitro, you didn't know what was going to happen when the cameras went off. You couldn't wait to tune in and figure out what they were doing and what was going on. Like you said, at the end of Raw, you kind of had a conclusion. And the story brought itself back to life next week. And the way they did Nitro, the story kept going from Monday night at 11 when it went off to the next Monday at 8 when it came back on or whatever time it was. You really wanted to tune in to see what you couldn't see. But you knew that when you turned into Raw, it was just going to be started back over again. You know what I mean? Yeah. One thing that Nitro did really, really well back in those days, 96, 97, 98, their last segment, they would cut off the air while things were still going on, which made you want to run to their website to see if there was any video of what was going on. You know, it would be 11.05 and they'd be, you know, telling us, we'll see you next week. But right as they say that, you know, Sting is dropping down from the rafters. You know, so, so you're left going, well, what, you know, what the heck happened with Sting? You know, what did he do? What are the NWO doing? You know, they're in there beating up Diamond Dallas Page and the Steiner brothers, and here comes Sting, but, oh, now we've moved on to the next show. Yeah, Meanwhile, you know, on Raw, most of the time, I would say about 90% of the time, as they cut off the air, you kind of knew that, okay, that's what it was, that's it. Either Stone Cold was on the corners smashing a beer together or, you know, The Undertaker was doing his thing, Shawn Michaels DX, you know, whatever the case was, you had a conclusion for that week's episode. Nitro was just a little bit better of driving traffic to their website or driving traffic to their 1-900 number at the time with, you know, the recently deceased Mean Gene. You know, he was great about keeping up that 900 number to feed you information about what was going on after the camera stopped. That cliffhanger ability was amazing. Man, 900 numbers. Who knew that they could generate so much money off of those 900 numbers? And nowadays, you look at it, you can get your information off of any wrestling website. Oh, yeah. You, know, you look at all the information that you have at your fingertips now, and you realize that all that stuff you're reading for free on the internet used to cost you a 40 or $50 phone call to listen to Jim Ross or Gene Okerlund 
tell you about it on the phone. All the stuff that you could read in a dirt sheet, you know, or you could get from Dave Meltzer, you know, you're getting for a dollar ninety nine a minute from Jim Ross or Gene Okerlund. It's crazy the amount of information you have just sitting right on your phone now. To me, it takes away, man. Like when we were young. And that cliffhanger happened, I don't know about you, but I would immediately beg my mom, let me call the 900 number, let me do this, let me do that. And, and nowadays, it's right there, and it's free, and it's, you know, I guess it's a part of getting old, but man, there was nothing better than to call that line when you were actually finally allowed to, and then you call your buddies the next day, or you see him at school, and he'd be like, well, I called the 900 number last night, my mom let me, and this is what happened. Mean Gene said, you know, A, B, and C, and it, it kept you going. Were the phone calls live or were they pre-recorded? I was always curious about that. I never called. I know I'm out of what my butt if I even tried to call the one nine hundred number. <laughs> yeah, they were all pre-recorded yeah, information. Pre-recorded, sure. uh, yeah, just recording of and none of it was exclusive stuff. No, none of it was it. ever uh, behind the scenes information. They gave you enough to make you think that you were getting what you weren't supposed to be getting, basically. Yeah, it was definitely pre-recorded. It was always just enough to give you that little bit of nice feeling. So you went to school the next day and you told everybody everything. And then the following week, you know, it was just such awesome advertising that they could come up with. Amazing money schemes, if you think about it. But yeah, it was definitely pretty cool. One of the things I wanted to talk to you guys about, definitely, because I did a little bit and I haven't done it as much lately, is playing softball, especially playing recreational competitive softball, depending on the leagues that you play in. And one of the things that my time as mainly a manager of a softball team, that was one of the most frustrating times when you're coaching and the feeling of helplessness when you're not playing. I felt like for me during my time managing softball, it was sort of like, okay, do the rundown, see who's all in, who's going to be there, start trying to formulate a lineup, formulate your doomsday lineup for the point where you have nobody trying to find someone who would be able to play on a whim and things like that. And I felt like sometimes that was one of the most frustrating things. But when the situation where you did win, they were so worth it. Yeah, this is kind of like where I excel at. I do all the coaching for our softball team. Then I'm a coach, manager, probably since about 2002. One of the most frustrating things to try to please people, and at the same time when you're trying to please everybody, you have to take yourself out of the lineup. You have to do a lot of moving around and piecing things together. And everybody works and everybody has a life and everybody has a job and you understand that softball doesn't come first but sometimes when you're expecting 12 people to show up and you make a lineup and your game starts at 6:30 and at 6:24, three guys text you and say well can't make it tonight sorry and you're running around scrambling looking like crazy you know you have to rewrite a whole new lineup and things like that but as we have won a few championships in our day it's really a good time. It's a nice way to stay competitive. It's a fun way to still be around your buddies. It's just really different to try to mold other people that, you know, are new coming in. But, you know, when you get that and you find a good team to play for, it's nothing better. It's really fun. And it's basically, it gets you out of the house, you kind of run around, you sip a beer or two, and you, you know, hang out with your buddies for an hour and you go home. To me, the juice is worth the squeeze. You know, the frustration is worth it to me. That's why I've done it for so long. Yeah, we've had our own teams since about 2002, different incarnations of these teams. We've had a real recent string of a lot of success with our team's sudden impact here in Salisbury. 
you know, we, we actually started a couple years ago as Ball So Hard with another friend of ours, Jason Jones. Shout out. And, uh, you know, we started almost kind of a dynasty. Every year you get a couple different pieces here and there. We've got a core of about five or six guys that no matter where we go, no matter what we do, you know, we're always going to be together and we're always going to play together. But, you know, it's hard finding the missing pieces to the puzzle to win championships. Since the end of 2015, we've been in the championship game every season. We've just had a lot of success with a lot of different players. But you feel like all of us that play, we're athletes. And we've played sports from the time we were six or seven years old up until you're 17, 18 years old and you get out of school. And, you know, that's all you know. In the summertime, you play baseball. In the fall, you play football and soccer. In the winter, you play wrestling and basketball, you know. And then in the, the spring, you're playing baseball and lacrosse and all these things. And then you get to that certain point where you're an adult now and you say, well, now I'm bored. And softball is just that way for us to get out spend four hours, five hours a week with your friends and your buddies. You stay competitive, you have fun, you do something that gives your life a little bit of a little bit of a jolt, you know, a little bit of a boost to say, you know what, I work forty hours a week and I've got a family and I've got a girlfriend or, you know, I've got a wife and I got kids, I got vacations and all these things. But for those five hours a week you just get to be a kid again. You know, I'm one of those people, I do goofy stuff, you know. I wear eye black when I play, and I, I wear my hat backwards, and I buy all the wristbands and wrist tapes and stuff like that. And it's not because I think I need them or because they help me. It's because it lets me go back to when I was 15 again and lets me have fun and just enjoy some things and get away from the stress of a job or, you know, home life or whatever it is. It just lets you be with your boys and have fun. And that's really what it's all about. One of the things I was going to ask, especially asking Mike, when it comes to managing, what's the position that you get the most people wanting to play? First, first base, not even a question. Not even a question. I will have... 15 on the roster, and I guarantee you I'll have seven first base. Not even the biggest position to try to fill is always third base. No one wants to play third base because primarily everybody's a right-handed hitter for the most part, and, you know, the ball's coming underhand, and it's not coming very fast, and everybody's going to hit the ball down the line. But definitely first base, not even a question. For me, it was pitching. We always had people who could play the other positions, but pitching was the biggest issue. We would have games where, especially early on, we would have games where the umps either wouldn't give us the calls or the pitches were too deep, and you just walk a conga line around the bases, just like that old World Series 95 commercial they had Brad Rackey where he would just give out home runs like crazy, and you would just walk a line around the bases, and it's like, man... And, you know, even in baseball, enough walks, it throws everybody out of their game. So you're just trying to get something on the ground so everybody's prepared. And sometimes yeah. it just wouldn't work. Now, I actually pitched. I know that feeling. And it's one of those things where sometimes you're throwing it across the plate and every umpire is different. Granted, it, like you said, like everybody knows, it is just softball. But it comes with the territory that every umpire is completely 100% different. So what would be flat to you is a strike to me, and what would be deep to Kevin is a strike to you. And you just kind of have to wait it out the first couple of innings. You try to get them to swing. 
that's the biggest thing you can do and hope that your defense comes with you because it is a hitting game. And uh, I've always had the pleasure of playing with some really good pitchers in our day, like Don Johnson, Brandon Hook. These guys can really pitch, and they like to pitch. And some of the things that they can throw are pretty on point, and they can field their position. And it's definitely a sought-after position because then again, you got to figure you're throwing underhand and you're about 50 feet away. And people are swinging some bats that are really nice. And a person that can't hit the ball to right field as a right-handed hitter is going to try still do that, is going to take one back up the middle at you, and then it becomes something crazy. Yeah, my brother pitched for us for a while. And one thing, I preferred him in the outfield because his speed helped. But the biggest thing he hated was pitching to lefties because it's coming right back. It was funny. I was pitching for like four innings. This was a couple years ago before there was a, um actual mask rule. Now you have to wear a mask. But we didn't have to, and I had pitched for about four innings, and I didn't wear a mask, and it just so happened that a buddy of mine playing second was like, you need to wear this mask, you just need to look out for yourself. And I put that mask on in the fifth inning, I threw a knuckleball to a left-handed hitter, and by the time I could take a step back, I took it right off the forehead, mm. right off the mask. Mm. And I didn't even have a chance to get my glove up. It popped off my head. My shortstop ended up fielding the ball, throwing it to first, throwing the guy out. It was crazy, and it's very dangerous. And to the people that do pitch, stay safe out there because it's definitely, you know, people go up there as they try to do that. And everybody has to go to work the next day, but it's definitely dangerous, especially left-handers. Yeah, that's the one thing, and especially after years of covering high school softball, and you'd think about it, definitely in that case, definitely the pitchers need the mask. They need everything to protect them because, you know, they're throwing underhand at what would be the equivalent of maybe a man's fastball on a mound from 60 and 6, and, you know, you need that mask. But then when you start seeing the former high school softball pitchers, when you see them with the mask, you're like, you don't really think they need it, but then sometimes it's just that old habit that can be reinforced. My brother always said, sometimes you need a cup and a mask. That's all you need. That's basically, and he caught too. He used to catch in high school and Little League, so he knows the importance of having a cup and having a mask. Absolutely. I played first base all growing up when I played baseball. And I can tell you, you know, pitching now in softball, I won't pitch if I don't have my mask. I actually bought a specific mask and a cup. And a lot of guys are using um, shin guards, catching shin guards. Because when you wear a mask and you bend down to try to field a ball, it's very hard for the mask to stay in place because it hits your chest. So what will end up happening is you'll look down to try to field a ball and you can't see anything but bars in front of your face. So you're going to take a ball off the leg. I took one off the belly this year, but I have a big belly, so it's not worked out. But, yeah, you know, it's very dangerous out there, and you want to protect your pitcher. Because, like you said, at the end of the day, everybody's got to go to work more. Everybody's got a family at home, and it's very, very dangerous out there. But at the same time, I've always been the kind of person to say, you know, if you're not willing to take the risk, then you shouldn't play in that spot. Mm-hmm. Same thing could happen if you play at third. Same thing could happen if you play at first. You know, somebody can come up here a nice hard line drive and you don't feel it properly things can happen we saw a guy uh beginning of our season last year second or third week of the season and uh guy playing third base he took a hard shot right off his throat hit him right in the throat and knocked him to the ground yeah it, you feel bad because you know that guy's still got to get up and go to work the next day yeah. um that guy's got a wife and kids and a family and you know that could have been a lot worse than what it was and he ended up being okay and he finished that game. That dude was a monster. <laughs> yeah, but it could have turned out a lot worse. 
So you do what you can to protect yourself, and you do what you can to be smart when you're playing. And we've got a friend of ours who used to play with us back in the day, and, I mean, he would play third base, and he would take ground balls off the shins and the thighs and everything else. You'd see him after the game. He'd be hobbling and limping. He'd have bruises all up and down his leg, and, you know, his name was Evan Carter. He's one of the best third basemen in softball I've ever seen. And he, he was Shout just, out. He, he was just a great third baseman, but, you know, you'd see him after a game, and he would, he would look like he was wounded in action. You know, he, was a, he looked like a hockey goalie. Uh, I just think of that spot in Major League where Roger Dorn took all those hard shots off of his body uh, <laughs> playing third. That, that's exactly what it and was. That's exactly what he did, and he would throw you out every time, and you still have 10 feet to run. Mm. Like, he was just a monster, and he would leave that game, and he would be bruised completely like <laughs> Roger Dorn did. When it comes to making a roster, and maybe you guys agree with this, always notice that it's always at shortstop, the speediest person, and they always have the great range to their right, but they never have their range to their left. Yeah, uh, for years, we were kind of lucky for our shortstop for a long time. It was actually my brother who came from playing baseball as an outfielder. So his range for a long time was really decent. So we had lucked out in that category. But you are correct. The range to the left, for some reason in softball, is very hard. It's very much more easy for people to go backhand. For some reason, I don't know why that is, but I completely agree. And when we try to make a roster or I try to make a lineup, I like to try to put guys that I know that can hit the ball to opposite field behind somebody that needs help running, you know, like your slower runners. So if I got a guy that can get on as a slower runner and he gets on first and then a guy comes up behind him, hits the ball to opposite field, that's a longer run for the outfielders to get to so that this guy that, you know, because mostly that guy is myself because I'm slow as can be. And, uh, you know, I can actually sometimes get from first to third. You know, it's one of those things. Yeah, we got really lucky with our teams that we've built. Mike's brother, Ted, he's a baseball player from, you know, the time he could tie his shoes. And, you know, he was an outfielder, and he was always the fastest person on the field, and he was always the, the hardest working guy on the field. And, you know, he played college baseball, and he, he hurt his knee, and he had to have some surgery. So, you know, he turned to slow pitch. And, you know, I tell him all the time, and a lot of it's, you know, just kind of joking around, messing around with him. But, you know, he's probably the best slow pitch player I've ever seen, I've ever played with. Still at 42, 43 years old, he can still hit the ball anywhere he wants, however hard he wants, you know, no matter the situation. You know, still at 43 years old, he can cover a ton of ground at, at shortstop or first base or third base, whatever we need him at. We got really lucky having a guy like that that, you know, we could just depend on day in and day out. You get those players where, you know, they always say big players show up in big moments, and that's always been Ted. He's always been that guy. If we're down by two and we've got three runners on and we need those two runs, you know, Ted's going to hit a home run and we're going to walk off that field winners. And we've always really appreciated that with him. It's funny, with the clutch moments you were just talking about, the most clutch situation I ever had was when we were playing co-ed softball, we were playing against WBOC. One reporter never really played softball like that. She didn't have a line drive swing or anything. She hit dribblers up the middle that the shortstop couldn't go to his left to get. Through the middle, drove in four runs and won the game for us. Just up the middle. 
They weren't hard shots. They weren't slow rollers. They were just sort of dribblers. And they just kept getting through. And each at bat drove in two runs in those situations. It's like, wow, for someone who never played and someone who doesn't have the hot shot line drive swing that, you know, I feel like with softball, you got to have a line drive swing. Don't have to really loft it like everybody does when you see those shows like Softball 360. You just have a nice solid line drive swing and you'll be fine. And she just dribbled it through. And it was just, I just couldn't help but sit there and sort of like, wow. And that's the best part about recreational softball is that, you know, you don't have to be a superstar every game. You know, you got 12 other people around you. And that's the best part about it. And I guarantee you that she went from not playing softball to having that happen. And I bet you she told everybody about that. I bet you <laughs> she was ecstatic about that. That's how it should be. Oh, yeah. And it was funny when we were just talking about managing earlier. I started getting that pit in my stomach of that feeling of like, oh, God, putting the lineups together. I started getting sort of like the uh, flashbacks. and like, oh, God, I had to wait for it to settle for a bit before I could even talk a little more about right. <laughs> lineups together. I always read the text message that you would get. Hey, I'm not going to be able to come tonight. And, it was, and it's never just one. It's like, hey, I can't come tonight. And then six other people will text you the same thing. So now you're down to like nine guys and you're like, hey. This is fun. This is great. Or on the opposite side of this week, you'll you'll show up and you'll have nine guys and you'll get water ruled out in the first two games. But then the very next week, you'll show up and you've got all 15 guys. And they all want to play. Everybody wants to play their preferred positions. And, you know, it's a headache. And, you know, I, I give Mike all the credit in the world. He's been handling it like, like a professional for close to 20 years he's been doing this. And, you know, honestly, honestly... Uh, playing in Salisbury, I, I don't know anybody better at it, of balancing everything as far as every year he finds the best available players that we can possibly get that fit the right pieces. Because it's not about finding, you know, the best players. Anybody can just, you know, hey, give me you, you, and you. But it's a matter of finding the players that mesh well together. You know, we had a championship team in uh, 2016 that, to this day, I really feel could beat any team in Salisbury if we were still together at this point. You know, we had a couple guys who moved away and you know couldn't come back, but uh, we had chemistry. Everybody was friends. Every night after the games, we'd go out and get dinner and have a beer and talk about the game, and you know, you know, we all still talk and text together all the time. And you know, it's hard to find that chemistry where everybody knows their role. Every Everybody knows their spot on the team, and everybody is together. You know, you you find teams now that everybody's just kind of like, everybody does their own thing, and everybody's just kind of worried about how they're doing. But, you know, when you got a guy who's not very good or a guy who's in a slump, and, uh, you know, I, I know uh, leading up into playoff, I had had a bad game defensively, and I just bought a new glove and wasn't quite broken in yet. And uh, I had missed the ball. It had bounced out of my glove. And in a pretty big moment, I went back, and I was walking to the dugout at the end of the inning, and I went to go grab another glove. And, uh, you know, a good friend of ours, Corey Shank, who's uh, the outfielder next to me, and you know, I was in left field. He was in left center. And, uh, you know, I went to grab this new glove to walk out to the field, and he looked at me and said, you put that glove back, you go get your other glove, get that stuff out of your head, and let's go win this game. And I ended up making a game-winning play later on in that inning. So, you know, it's having those kind of guys that pick you up when, you know, you've made a bad play, you've you've done something that you're not happy with that separates winning teams from losing teams. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things I know is positive reinforcement that helps just, especially if somebody hasn't played before, that's a big thing. And one of the things I used, when especially to find out who was going to play and who wasn't, I did a Facebook group and I just say, here's the Sunday morning roll call. Who's in, who's out? Let me know ahead of time. If you can't make it, I'll plan in advance. 
That's exactly what we do. We do the same thing. We have a team Facebook page. I add everybody to it. I get up every morning for work at 5.30. I text the page. I say, hey, roll call. Game night tonight, 6.30, 8.30, field two. Who's coming? Who's not? And it works 95% of the time, and, and that other 5% kind of sucks, but, you know, it happens. Oh, yeah. As I start to wrap this up, I want to say thank you guys for being a part of this. I know we've been trying to work this out, and I'm definitely looking forward to having you guys again. I feel we could do one episode just talking about softball in general, and that's what we might do that next time. What are ways that people can reach out to you if you're on social media in addition to Facebook? Of course, that's the way I got you guys through Facebook, but do you guys have anything else, Twitter or anything of those likes? Uh, No, not really. We're usually just on Facebook. I barely know how to use the internet, to be honest with you. Hey, nothing wrong with that. Hey, sometimes it's better just to keep what you got, just to not overwhelm. <laughs> I feel like I reach everybody I need to on Facebook. I don't try to mess with the rest of the social media stuff. You know, it's just kind of... I can barely Facebook myself yeah. or anything else. Yeah, really. Other than sharing like blog posts, for me on Instagram, it's just food, really. That's all it is. It's just whatever I made or wherever I went, it's just food. Yeah, your food always looks really good. I'm not going to lie. But uh, you, you, you keep me feeling hungry quite a bit, Earl. I've just been like trying to pull recipes off the internet, like YouTube or something like that. It's just, I think that's the biggest thing. It's just going out there and trying to experiment with different foods or at least try to stick to the instructions. I feel like if you can stick to the instructions, nine out of 10 times, it's going to go well. The one I saw last week, I believe it was, you had some liver and onions. I wasn't too sure about that. Yeah, that was bad. I was about to bring that up myself. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, liver and onions, man. I love it. I feel like just add that extra gravy. I feel like with stuff like that, I was always a big fan of liver and onions with the gravy and the mashed potatoes. My mom used to try to make me eat that when I was a kid, and I would... I would always have a stomachache that night. <laughs> I never could I never could eat dinner that night and I feel the same way. <laughs> I know it's like when it comes to liver, I mean I understand, you know, some people eat scrapple, some people eat chitlins, some people eat so many other things and I'll leave chitlins to other people, but I'll eat liver and scrapple any day. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can I'll, do Scrapple. I'll, I'll eat Scrapple seven days a week. Yeah. So I really lucked out. I married a nice woman that can cook like crazy and a mother-in-law that taught her how to cook. <laughs> Between those two, it's very hard to stay uh, <laughs> on a good diet because they will cook amazing foods. That's what I learned. It's all about moderation in that case. You, you shouldn't <laughs> stop eating what you like. You just eat it in small portions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, guys, I do appreciate it. Thank you so much, and I look forward to having you guys on again. Uh, yeah, we're looking forward to it, man. Uh, you know, we got the, the road to WrestleMania starts here in a, in a few weeks, so you know, anytime you want to chat about you know what's going on and the lead up to WrestleMania, we'll definitely be here. And keep up the great work, man. It's awesome. I love reading it. Yeah, your podcast and your and your blogs and all that stuff, man. They're doing a great job. Keep it up. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate Mike Brittingham and Kevin McGarity for taking time to take part in this interview, and I'm really looking forward to having them back again, hopefully very soon. Next week, my guest will be Diamond Holton, a contributor to the Washington Wizards SB Nation blog, Bullets Forever, and the social media manager for the Bullets Forever's Washington Mystics coverage. We'll discuss how she became interested in writing and journalism, her chance meeting with one of her major journalism influences, as well as her thoughts on one of her favorite tennis players, Serena Williams. Don't forget you can now leave show reviews and comments at one of the many places you can find us, including Apple iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher Radio, and now iHeartRadio. We'll even read your review on a future episode of the podcast. 
Until then, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good week. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge Podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.